Hey, welcome to the Let's Talk Math podcast. Today we will talk about numbers. Our discussion will range from the natural numbers to the complex numbers, where numbers come from and what they mean. But as usual, let's start with a joke. Why are the complex numbers always late to everything? Because they can never keep their things in order. Alright, alright, alright. If you don't understand this, then you should stick by it. Because this is a pretty funny joke. Alright, first we start with the natural numbers. We didn't always understand the natural numbers, or numbers at all, although we have always understood the concept of counting for a long time now. In fact, the concept of zero has been around since the Empire of the Mayans, and since the Babylonians, and since Old India. It was only until the 19th century when set theory was developed that we were able to define numbers in a mathematical and rigorous way. And that is where we start here, the introduction of the natural numbers. First, informally, a set is defined as a collection of unique elements, which follow some kind of property. For example, the set with the elements 1, 1, and 2 is equivalent to the set 1, 2. In this way, a set does not have duplicates. Secondly, the union of two sets is a set which contains the elements in both sets. For example, if we have two sets, one set with the numbers 1, 2 in it, and another set with the numbers 2, 3 in it, the union of these two sets is 1, 2, 3. Note, if you want to learn more about set theory and the fundamentals of set theory, you should look up the Zermelo-Franco axioms. Now, let's define the successor map. The successor map is a map that maps a set to another set. For example, if you map a set X, through the successor map, you get the set x union the set of x. In other words, s of x outputs a set containing x and the set of x. Now we can define the empty set as 0. Now what happens if we map the empty set through the successor map? We get the empty set union the set of the empty set. However, every set contains the empty set in it. Therefore, the output is the set of the empty set. Note, it is crucial to understand that the set of a set A is not the same as the set A. Nevertheless, now we can define 1 as the successor of the empty set. In other words, the set of the empty set. Similarly, we can keep going and define 2 as the successor of the set of the empty set or the successor of 1. And we can keep this going to n or n plus 1. The successor of n is n plus 1. And this gives us the set of the natural numbers. Now note, the set of the natural numbers is actually a set of sets. And the notation 1, 2, 3, 4, and etc. is only notation. Of course, the empty set, the set of the empty set, etc. are also notation, but that's a whole other story. Also very important note. Not only have we proved that the natural numbers exist, but we have also proved that infinite sets exist. Since we have seen that we can simply input n into the successor map and we get out n plus 1, if we input n plus 1, we get out n plus 2, etc, etc. If you're into logic, you can look up how this method that we have used leads to the proof of the principle of mathematical induction. Now, we know that the natural numbers, they are compatible with two composition laws, namely addition and multiplication. 
We also know that these composition laws are commutative and they're associative. In an intro to proofs class, you would actually go about proving that these things are true, that multiplication in the natural numbers is commutative and how addition is also commutative. You would also prove that multiplication is distributive with respect to addition. And you would do all of these things using the properties of the successor map and principles of set theory. We can also introduce an ordering on the natural numbers. We can introduce a partial ordering, which is a type of order relation. This is the concept of greater than, less than, or equal to that you are familiar with. We also know that addition and multiplication are compatible with, you know, less than or greater than or equal to relations. You can also look up what total orderings and well orderings are to get a little bit accustomed to what orderings are. A quick sneak peek, I think I will make an episode on equivalence relations and potentially also uh, order relations and talk about what, it, what equations really mean and what does it mean for things to be equivalent. I will also talk about modular math. To conclude the natural numbers, we should note that the natural numbers are a monoid with respect to addition. Since we have introduced the natural numbers, now we can solve equations of the form x plus 1 is equal to 2, where we know the solution would be 1 for x. Now, we can't solve equations of the form x plus 2 is equal to 1, because we don't know what negative numbers are yet. But this leads us to the integers, or z. Now, with the integers is where we start to get into more abstract math. It's where we start to see how equivalence relations and order relations really play the role into making the structure of a set. So what are the integers? Well, the integers informally are a set or a union of the natural numbers and the negative of the natural numbers. But this is not the rigorous definition of the integers. The rigorous definition of the integers is the Cartesian product of the natural numbers with the natural numbers, along with an equivalence relation defined by, for a coordinate pair mn, that coordinate pair is equivalent to m minus n. So if you have the coordinate pair 2, 1, that is equivalent to 2 minus 1 or 1. Similarly, the coordinate pair 0, comma, 5 is equivalent to 0 minus 5 or negative 5. And this is how we start to introduce the negative numbers. The negative numbers can be defined as 0, comma, n for n in the natural numbers that are not 0. Quick note, the Cartesian product of n cross n is defined as the coordinate pairs of mn, where m is in the natural numbers and n is in the natural numbers. If we pay attention, we can start to see something weird that we haven't seen before. The pairs 0, 0, 1, 1, 2, 2, n, n are all equivalent to 0. We can start to see a structure here. This happens for not only 0, but for all numbers in the integers. We can represent every number of the integers in infinite many ways. To make this more concrete, consider 1, 0, which is equivalent to 1, and that is equivalent to 2, 1, 3, 2, n, n minus 1. And this works for all integers. The set of all coordinate pairs that represent one number in the integers are called an equivalence class. So every element in the integers has an equivalence class, which is an infinite set. This means that the, our equivalence relation splits the set 
of the integers into equivalence classes. Now that we understand what every element of the integers means, now we can start to define what addition and multiplication means. However, the math for defining multiplication and addition in the integers according to our equivalence relation and our coordinate pairs is a little bit tedious, so it's not appropriate to cover in, in this podcast. But the point is that z, or the integers, is compatible with addition and multiplication. Very important note, addition in the integers is not the same as addition in the natural numbers. Because here we have an equivalence relation and we have coordinate pairs that make the addition and multiplication a little bit more complicated. Gladly, the natural numbers are a subset of the integers, so we don't have to find some way to make the additions or multiplications equivalent or compatible. As you might expect, the integers are also compatible with an ordering. In fact, it is a total ordering. Again, I would like to point out that an ordering is simply a concept of if you have two numbers that are not equal to each other in the integers, then one is less than the other or they must be equal to each other. This concept is also often called a natural ordering. Now, we are also familiar with some of the properties that the integers have with respect to this ordering. So if you have one is less than or equal to two, then if you multiply both by negative two, then it changes, it changes the relation now. And there are rigorous ways to define these properties of z with respect to this order relation. And you can look that up for yourself. Lastly, let's quickly talk about some of the algebraic properties of z. Z is a group with respect to addition, since we have the identity, we have inverses, and it's closed under addition. And Z is also a ring with respect to addition and multiplication. I think I will also make another episode where I talk about different algebraic structures like groups, monoids, rings, fields, and maybe even modules. I would also like to note that the cardinality of Z, or the integers, is also equal to the cardinality of N, or the natural numbers. And this has to do with the fact that the Cartesian product of n cross n has the same cardinality as n. You can prove this by finding a bijection between the integers and the natural numbers. For example, consider this map. We map 0 to 0, 1 to 1, 2 to minus 1, 3 to 2, 4 to minus 2, and we continue this pattern. And this will define a bijection. To conclude the integers, now we can solve equations of the form x plus 5 is equal to 0, where we know x should be equal to negative 5. However, now we can't solve equations of the form 2x is equal to 3 because we don't know what 3 over 2 is yet. This leads us to the rational numbers. The set of rational numbers, abstractly, is defined very similar to the way the integers are defined. We define the set of rational numbers as the set z cross z star, where z star is the set of non-zero integers. And we also impose an equivalence relation on this Cartesian product, namely m comma n is equivalent to m over n. Note that we had z cross z star, where z star didn't include zero because we don't want to divide by zero. To make this more concrete, two comma three would be equivalent to two over three. Now again, we can start to see how this equivalence relation will split our set of Q, or the rational numbers, into equivalence classes. Where any number m comma n is equivalent to m over n, and m over n would be equivalent to rm comma rn for any r that is not zero. In other words, 2 times 3 
over 2 times 4 is equivalent to 3 over 4. Note, multiplication and addition in the rational numbers is defined in the same way you learned it in elementary school or middle school or whatever. But again, we can start to see that every element of the rational numbers or any rational number can be expressed in many ways inside of the rational numbers or inside of the Cartesian product z cross z star. Now, as you are familiar, the rational numbers also accept an ordering on them. In fact, the ordering is also a total ordering. Again, we will not cover the implications of this total ordering. However, you should feel free to look them up. Now, let's note some important properties of Q. Q is an abelian group with respect to addition, and Q star, not including zero, is also an abelian group with respect to multiplication. This leads us to the fact that Q is also a ring with respect to addition and multiplication, and in fact, Q is a field with respect to addition and multiplication. If you are interested in field theory, in fact, Q is the smallest field with characteristic zero. This would be something you would prove in an abstract algebra course on field theory or that covers field theory. Also note that the cardinality of Q is equal to the cardinality of Z, and we know that the cardinality of Z is equal to the cardinality of N, therefore the cardinality of Q is equivalent or equal to the cardinality of N. This means that Q is countable, in fact it's infinitely countable, and we can find a bijection between N and Q. You can look up Cantor's diagonalization if you want to know more about how to prove this. Now, from the analysis perspective, Q is dense, meaning that for any P and Q that are not equal and are in the rational numbers, there exists a Z in Q, which is in between P and Q. And this is, of course, with respect to the ordering on Q. This property is often called Archimedes' principle. This idea of denseness is what leads us to the fact that real numbers exist. In other words, that irrational numbers exist. Note, proving irrational numbers exist is equivalent to proving real numbers exist, since real numbers are the union of irrational numbers and rational numbers. Before we get to the construction of the real numbers, I would like to point out that now we can solve equations of the form 5x is equal to 3. However, we cannot solve equations of the form x is equal to the sum of 1 over n factorial. We know x should be equal to e, but e is not a rational number, so we don't know how to define it yet. An important note is that we can actually also define a topology on Q. We can discuss open balls and closed balls in Q. We can define metrics on Q, and this is because Q is dense. On the other hand, if you wanted to, you could define lattice points on z or something similar for n. Now, let's get to real numbers. We define elements of the real numbers as sequences of rational numbers. In other words, we can define the real numbers as an infinite Cartesian product of Q with itself. Note, the irrational numbers are defined in such a way that they cannot be written in the form m over n where m and n are integers. This is another way of saying that irrational numbers are not rational numbers and they are disjoint sets. The way to show that irrational numbers exist, or real numbers exist, is by showing that a sequence of rational numbers can converge to a number not in the rational numbers. One, this means that the set of rational numbers is not complete, and two, this means that there exists a set bigger than the rational numbers, namely, this is the real numbers. For example, we know that the square root of 2 is not in the rational numbers, 
because we cannot write the square root of 2 as a fraction of integers. Now, since the rational numbers are dense, this means that we can get as close as we want to square root of 2. In fact, we can construct a sequence that converges to square root of 2 using an algorithm that follows. It is easy to prove that the square root of 2 lies between 1 and 2. We can also show that the square root of 2 lies between 1 and 1.5. In the same way, we can show that the square root of 2 lies between 1.25 and 1.5. We can keep splitting the differences like this until we get infinitesimally close to square root of 2. Then we can make a sequence out of the numbers in the history of our algorithm. It would look something like this. 1, 2, 1.5, 1.25, etc., etc. This sequence would converge to square root of 2. We can also show this by forming two sequences, one from the left and one from the right that approach square root of 2. Now, if you want to know more about these sequences and how they converge or when they converge, you can look up Cauchy sequences and conversion sequences. Note, we can also apply addition and multiplication on sequences. So therefore, this means that we can apply addition and multiplication on the real numbers. Of course, the way we're used to operating on the real numbers is different from the abstract way of operating on the real numbers, which is operating on sequences. Note, there is also an ordering on R, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this ordering already. Now, similar to the rational numbers, every real number is an equivalence class in the set of the Cartesian product of Q with itself infinitely many times. In other words, every real number is an equivalence class of all the sequences that converge to that number. These equivalence classes are also infinite sets. A way to show this is by considering the sequence 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1 with 1 repeated infinitely many times. This sequence will converge to 1. Now consider the sequence 0, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1 with 1 repeated infinitely many times. This sequence will also converge to 1. In fact, if you insert any finite number of numbers in front of a sequence that converges, that sequence will still converge. This means that every real number has an infinite amount of sequences that converge to that number. Another very important property of R is that R is complete, meaning that if you make a sequence that converges out of the real numbers, this sequence converges in R or converges to a number in R. Recall that we saw that Q is not complete and this gave rise to the real numbers. The proofs of these things are often things that you cover in real analysis or an intro to proofs class. Note, R is also a field under addition and multiplication. It is a ring under addition and multiplication. It is a group under addition. It is a group under multiplication, not including zero. And it is a ring as well. We could also talk about the topology on R, but this would have to be a whole new episode since there is so much work on this. Nevertheless, I would also like to point out that R is also dense and it defines a continuum, meaning that it is uncountably infinite. You may have gotten a hint at this by how we define R. We define R as an infinite Cartesian product of Q. Now that we have defined the real numbers, we can solve equations of the form x is equal to the sum of 1 over n factorial. However, we cannot solve equations of the form x squared is equal to negative 1. To do this, we would also have to introduce the complex numbers and we would have to define what they mean. But we won't do this in great detail since the construction is very similar to that of the real numbers. In fact, 
The complex numbers can be defined as the Cartesian product of R cross R with the equivalence relation that any coordinate pair MN is defined as M plus IN, where, of course, M and N are real numbers. Here, the addition is component-wise, meaning that for two complex numbers, M plus IN and P plus IQ, you add the M plus the P and the Q plus the N. Now, a very important part about the complex numbers is that there is no well-defined order on the complex numbers. And this is what the joke at the start was talking about. Lastly, I would like to point out that the complex numbers, like the rational numbers and the integers, are not simply a Cartesian product, but they are a Cartesian product with a property called an equivalence relation, which really gives life to the set. It gives a set structure. But in this case, with the complex numbers, not only does it give the set structure, but it also gives it a weird property where i can be multiplied by a real number and where i squared is equal to negative one. Here, this hints at something deep that is happening between the complex numbers and the real numbers and the way they're interacting with each other. I would recommend that you go online and look these things up because there's some really cool rigorous mathematics that's going on behind this. And while you're there, you should also look up the quaternions so you can get a little bit of understanding of what these higher dimensional sets are like. Lastly, C or the complex numbers is also complete and this has to do with the fact that C is defined according to R, the real numbers. And C is also a field. Finally, to end the podcast, I would like to talk about the algebraic numbers. The algebraic numbers are defined to be the roots of polynomials with rational coefficients. In fact, the integers and the rational numbers are subsets of the algebraic numbers. This can easily be seen by considering the polynomial x plus n equals 0 where n is in the rational numbers and n is a root. A cool property of algebraic numbers is that they are countable. Since the set of algebraic numbers is a subset of the complex numbers and the complex numbers are uncountable, then that means that the set of non-algebraic numbers is uncountable. Simple examples of numbers that are not algebraic are pi and e. This means that you cannot construct a polynomial equation with rational coefficients that has the root pi or e in it. In a rigorous abstract algebra course, you would cover properties of algebraic numbers and non-algebraic numbers, along with proofs that support these properties. You might even cover this in a real analysis course or uh, an analysis course. This is it. If you would like to know more about these things, I would really recommend looking these things up. I will cover more and more things, but of course, I would want you to look these things up on your own. I would also recommend going through proofs and solving through these proofs on your own since math is a practice and not simply something you do in your head. If you are a math major, these are the very basics that you should know about all these sets. And this is it. I hope you enjoyed the content. I hope you learned a lot. If you would like to keep up with the podcast and you enjoy very funny math memes, then I would recommend following at the LTM podcast on Instagram. If you would like to contact me for any questions or concerns on the podcast or anything regarding it, you can email me at theltmpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. This was the LTM Podcast. See you on the next one.